I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is Natalie Wexler. I follow her articles on education in Forbes, and she has also had pieces in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and other publications. She has three books. The latest, which was released in 2019, is called The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System, and How to Fix It. And that's what we're going to talk with her about today. What needs to be fixed in America's education system, and can it truly be better than it is today? Good morning, Natalie. Thank you for joining me today. Well, good morning, Jill, and uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, this is great. Can you start just by telling us a little bit about your background? You've practiced law. You're a writer. Uh, you focus on education in America. What was your path to getting there? How did you end up doing what you do now? Well, it was um, not a straight line at all, and um, I was only a practicing lawyer for all of eight months, so okay. <laughs> that, that, and that was a long time ago, but um, I mean, rather than go into every detail, I would say uh, I started in journalism. Um, my first job was as a reporter, and then one thing or another, I veered off towards law and then legal history, um, and then I veered back towards journalism, and I about... 10 years ago now started writing about education in Washington, D.C., where I live, um, partly because the, I, I could see I'd been sort of involved in the education reform movement, and I could see there, there was a lot going on here, um, and there just wasn't really enough coverage. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because I wanted to figure out uh, what the problem was, what, with, what we normally you know, often call the achievement gap, this gap in test scores and other education outcomes between students at the upper and lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, essentially. Right. And um, I wanted to solve this mystery of, you know, why have we not been able to narrow that gap? And, and why have we not really been able to improve overall outcomes for all students? Uh, and for me, the best way to figure out something that I don't understand is to write about it. So mm -hmm. I started writing about education here in DC for a sort of communal news website. Um, and it was, just, I mean, I was fascinated and still am fascinated by education and it seems just so incredibly important to me, but I did after a few years stumble across something that was bigger than Washington DC and um, bigger than a, a, the kinds of posts I was writing. And so that led me to write the book, The Knowledge Gap. Right. So here's how I come um, into this conversation. So our foundation, one of its key areas of focus is education and transformation in education. And in the city of Boston, I think like many cities across the country this year, we have three exam schools and the school committee has voted to move away from an exam for admissions uh, to this year's exam schools. But as they made that decision, it was generally applauded as um, a move away from systemic racism in the entry into our exam schools. So there's there's one line of thinking that says that this is this is what we need to be fixing is the admissions policy into exam schools. And then there's another line of thinking that says, oh, the exam schools and the problems in admission are just a um, symptom of something that's much deeper, um, which comes, which goes all the way back to early education and to our elementary system and to um, the ways that 
kids are kind of broken into different streams through testing and otherwise from grade three onward. And you talk a lot about this phenomena in your book, but um, for me, that was, that was kind of a big aha moment, not having spent a lot of time paying attention to public school education since I was a public school student years ago. Um, I had no idea, you know, of all of the kind of layers that have been put in to where some kids really are routed, you know, straight to success and to exam schools. And, and then the majority of kids, at least here in Boston, but my understanding is this is true in other urban districts as well, are routed to schools that, you know, maybe where they end up with, you know, kind of a 50% graduation rate from college, just really schools that are not serving them well, but it's kind of starting all the way, you know, downstream. And so could you talk a little bit about what you've uncovered and do I have, am I framing that correctly? Yeah, I mean, it's a really complicated issue. And this, what's happening in Boston is of course happening all pretty much all over the country, at least in many places. Right. And I think there is an, a pers a, a, an accurate perception that the population, the demographics of, of these exam schools or these more elite schools does not accurately reflect the potential of various subgroups in the population that are underrepresented there. That is a totally accurate perception and it is understandable that there is a lot of concern about this. But um, these tests, certainly the, the, the tests that, you know, the screening tests for uh, exam schools, um, they're not the root of the problem as, as you sort of, I think have intuited. And um, if we were to get rid of those tests, you know, I don't think we, we would be solving the problem. We would maybe be kicking the can down the road a bit. And probably what you would see is that those exam schools would come to look more like quote unquote diverse high schools, uh, you know, that, that have a range of uh, income levels and racial characteristics. And what, what tends to happen in those schools is that you get the white kids, the more affluent kids, often the Asian kids are all in the honors and AP classes and the other kids are in the regular classes. Um, right. And so what is the reason for that? Uh, and that really has to do, you know, it's not that we are necessarily treating less less privileged kids differently. It's that our standard approach to teaching really works only for kids who start out with advantages. Um, so we have an education system that is unintentionally further privileging the already privileged. And so this is really what the book is about, but basically um, what I stumbled across is that the problems that become so apparent in high school and the tracking that we're so exercised at the high, about at the high school level, right. those things have their roots in the way we teach elementary school. And especially over the last 20 years, as reading and math tests have become so important, we've had this laser-like focus on reading and math, especially in schools where test scores are low. And on the reading side, a lot of that time that's spent, you know, maybe three hours out of the school day, um, is on re what are called reading comprehension skills and strategies. And the mm -hmm. idea is that the kids just real, get really good. They just practice finding the main idea or making inferences, the things that appear to be evaluated on reading tests. On tests, right. Then, then they, will be, they will become better readers and better students, and they will be able to handle any, find the main idea of any text that's put in front of them. And, the, and meanwhile, we've been cutting back on subjects like social studies and science and the arts to spend more time on those reading comprehension skills. And the idea right. is, well, later, later on, 
kids can acquire knowledge by using these skills. But it doesn't, reading comprehension does not work like that as studies have, have shown for decades. Um, the most important component in reading comprehension is not an abstract, generally applicable skill at you know, finding the main idea or whatever. It's how much you know, how much you know about the topic you're reading, about how much general academic knowledge and vocabulary you have. And what's the best way to build that kind of knowledge and vocabulary? It's actually through social studies, through science and, and the arts and literature. But all these things that we've been cutting back on and that more privileged kids, actually kids really from more highly educated families, they're able to pick up a lot of that knowledge and vocabulary at home. So it, so their test scores are better and they are deemed to be, okay, they're on grade level so they can get the social studies, they can get the science, but they're the kids who are least likely to really need that stuff. I mean, they should have it, but the kids who need that stuff from school the most are the ones who are mo most unlikely to get it in our current system. So this this is very interesting to me because you know, as before I, I read your book and read, you know, kind of follow the articles that you write for Forbes, I was left with the question of how like, how do you change that, right? Like if if the problem really starts in elementary school. Is it really true that some schools are just doing a great disservice to kids and other schools are not, that some schools are full of teachers who aren't adept at teaching and other schools are not? It just didn't make sense to me that it could be that simple. And, and what you are, you're saying is, is it's actually, there's a huge gap in knowledge that comes from a gap in opportunity. And you know the opportunity gap is kind of well-perceived and well-defined, and yet, it, it sounds like what you're arguing for is that knowledge has to lead. Um, right now we're trying to lead with skills, but you those skills can only be acquired if you have knowledge to pursue them. And can you talk a little more deeply about what that means exactly? Like, what do I need to know before I can really be asked to look for, you know, tactical things like the main topic of a sentence or things like that? Well, I mean, it's not that you have to wait to be asked those things. It's that you can only be asked those things when you have the knowledge that Context. would enable you to answer that question. So, right. you know, I mean, this is, is now happening in various parts of the country that some schools are switching to a different kind of elementary literacy curriculum that does build kids' knowledge, that puts content in the foreground. And that's how those, if you wanna call them skills, that's how those skills, I would call them what habits develop. Mm, the okay. habit of, I mean, because you're a skill like riding a bike or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, you just practice it, you get better at it, you can apply it to anything. It, finding something like finding the main idea, you could be really good at finding the main idea if you're reading about something you know a lot about, yeah. but then you get handed a text on molecular biology, or if I were handed a text on molecular biology, I would have a much harder time finding the main idea than if I'm handed a text on, you know, education policy. So um, it's not like you have to wait. I followed a second grade class through a school year, and they were making inferences, and they were finding main ideas all over the place. But nobody was saying, okay, now we're going to, this is what we're going to find a main idea. We're going to practice making inferences. The teacher would ask questions that required them to find important ideas and to make inferences. And I just this morning actually spent a couple of hours sitting in on some classes in the Baltimore City public school system. They have also adopted uh, one of these new curricula. And mm. these were amazing. This was a fourth grade class and an eighth grade class. And 
these kids were doing amazing analytical work, but they mm -hmm. were doing it, they, they were able to do it because their knowledge was being built about the American Revolution in the fourth grade class or about World War One in the eighth grade class. And um, that's how you, we all want kids to be able to think critically and to analyze what they're reading and to acquire new information from their right. reading. Right. Um, but the way to get them there is not by teaching sort of these, you know, there's also an effort to teach abstract critical thinking skills. That doesn't work either. You cannot think critically about a topic that you don't know anything about. And the more yeah. you do know about a topic, the better equipped you are to think critically about it. And so this critical, these critical thinking skills, these comprehension skills, if you want to call them that, they need to be woven into instruction with knowledge building from the beginning. They don't have to wait until kids have a certain critical mass of knowledge. Now, what does have to wait is what we do on quote unquote reading tests, which you know are, are essentially knowledge tests as uh, cognitive scientist Dan Willingham has said, they're knowledge tests in disguise. Um, you know, Giving kids a reading passage on a topic they may know nothing about and then asking them comprehension questions. Well, at a certain point, kids will have enough uh, sort of a critical mass of academic, general academic knowledge and vocabulary that they will be able to handle anything you throw at them that's quote unquote on grade level and understand it. Mm -hmm. But it's impossible to know with any given kid and any given reading test when that point will have been reached. And, and this is why we're seeing such dramatic differences, do you think, in reading comprehension scores between kids of more affluent backgrounds and kids of less affluent backgrounds with less um, access to different opportunities and different experiences? It's a large part of it. Um, I, it's, you know, background knowledge of, or general academic knowledge and vocabulary isn't the only thing that goes into reading comprehension. Reading comprehension is very complicated. I would say the another sort of, you know, connected major component of reading comprehension is familiarity with the peculiar conventions of written language. There mm -hmm. are things, a written language is almost always more complex than spoken language. There are, are there are sentence constructions and syntax and words that you really only encounter in written language. And so, uh, if, if you're not familiar with those things, you're going to, I mean, you, like there's this famous baseball study. It showed that kids who knew a lot about baseball, but tested low on a standardized reading comprehension test could read and understand something sort of above their level uh, if it was about baseball. Huh. But if you'd shown them like a scholarly article, imagine a scholarly article about baseball that used a lot of, you know, complex sentence construction and words like moreover or whatever, and those kids weren't familiar with that kind of those conventions, they might have a hard time with that. And so we have to get kids, we have to expand their knowledge. We also have to expose them to these conventions of written language through reading aloud to them from texts that they probably couldn't yet read themselves to familiarize them with those conventions. And that's what more advantaged kids from more educated families get much more of at home in right. addition and to having their knowledge expanded. So how do we how do we incentivize the system and the adults in the system to almost work in reverse? It sounds like we've gotten to a point where the tests and testing are provide the incentives for the teaching and therefore the teaching kind of follows a very narrow route which is not serving lots of kids well. Um, and you talk about how certain districts are adopting this new format of teaching literacy which which where you acquire knowledge and skills. Um, 
in tandem. How hard is it in your experience in, in watching districts try to shift to that new paradigm of teaching? How hard is it to one, um, propose that sort of strategy and then have it widely adopted, especially when we're talking about big urban districts? Yeah, I mean, I think it really varies. Um, and I've talked to uh, teachers and educators in some districts that say, you know, we adopted this curriculum and everybody's like on board with it from the get go and others where there's definitely more resistance. Mm -hmm. I think that what is needed um, is a multi-pronged approach. So it's not just top down. It's not just the administ school administration, central office saying, okay, because teachers hear this all the time. Okay, we're starting something new. You got to do this new thing. And they don't say why. And teachers, as they have his historically, my mother was a teacher, they can just shut the door and do what makes sense to them. So right. you have to make sure that it makes sense to teachers to do this new thing. But that even if, I mean, I've also, I get emails all the time from teachers saying, you know, I read your book, I want to make this change happen, but my district, you know, is still using this other system. What can I do? And there are things that individual teachers can do, but there are limits because building knowledge is a gradual cumulative process that extends across grade levels. And a teacher can't control what happens the year before, the year after, what's going on in the next classroom or whatever. So it really needs to come from both. Um, I do think that often testing can be an obstacle to getting everybody to, to change because it, you know, your kids, if you adopt one of these curricula and your kids know a lot about Greek myths and the human digestive system and you, they get into the testing room and the reading passages are all about the Inuit or Amelia Earhart or whatever, and they may not yet have that critical mass of academic knowledge and vocabulary to deal with those reading passages. You know your kids have learned a lot, but it's not showing up on the test scores, and that can right. be really discouraging. Um, yeah. So I think it's important for teachers to understand what tests are really measuring. But another thing that I hope will happen with testing, and is, as far as I know, only happening in one state so far as an experiment, and this is the state of Louisiana, they okay. are experimenting with an innovative uh, reading test. And, this, that the fact that this is an innovation is sort of heartbreaking, but they, oh, no. they are going to have reading passages on this test that actually reflect what students have learned, what the, is in the curriculum in both ELA and social studies, rather than essentially just testing them on the knowledge they happened to pick up. And that both it levels the playing field for students yep. and also provides an incentive for teachers to actually focus on the content rather than these illusory skills because it's going to make a difference on the test. That's, that's interesting. So that makes me wonder, you, you must look at this as well systemically, at, you know, from the top. And, and it's my understanding that in education, there's not a lot that we can do at a national level that is going to play out the way it would, it was intended because, because there's so much room for trans, you know, for interpretation along the way, but we also, we can we can dive into COVID nineteen and what this what what you think the impacts are there, but but in particular to start, we're we're going to see huge infusions of new funding in education coming out at a national level to help districts. I think try to move through and into a new space based on the holes that have kind of been dug in education this year for our students. It, are there things that 
should be happening in parallel with that new funding to try to incentivize new behaviors? Or should we look at some sort of national test for the next couple of years to, to kind of reset a pace, but with an eye to what you're talking about? Or would that just be would that muddy the waters? Well, the problem with a national test is, you know, it can't be grounded in the content, assuming kids are learning content. It, it can't really be grounded in content kids are learning because they're learning all different things. And it's not going to be possible in this country to have mm -hmm. a national curriculum. Mm -hmm. Now, states like Louisiana, they they there's no constitutional or other limitation on their ability to, they haven't really required all schools to adopt this state-created ELA and social studies curriculum. But apparently, through incentives, 80% of classrooms in the state have done so. Huh. So states can do a lot. Districts can certainly do a lot. Um, and a couple like Baltimore and Detroit, I know, and uh, there's a district in Houston called Aldine. It's also a, a large urban district have been adopting these curriculum. There are others out there. Um, but I think at the federal level, um, you know, federal efforts to improve education have often backfired. So they have to be very, very careful. Right. I think the one thing that I would love to see, you know, the new secretary of education do is just to start talking about this issue yeah. as a right. bully pulpit. He could do a lot to just raise awareness. And then I, I think there probably are, and I am not an education policy maker, and, you know, but I think there probably are some well thought out incentives that the federal government could uh, put in place that could encourage states and districts to move towards building knowledge at the elementary level. They have certainly mm -hmm. through carrots and sticks under No Child Left Behind and um, Race to the Top, they had a huge influence on what went on in a lot of schools and they not always, I mean, it was intended to be for the good. It didn't right. always have the intended effects, but something like that informed by an understanding of what we act, what, what education really is, how it works, how learning actually works, I think could have a powerful effect. Yeah, that's interesting. On, on, the, on the flip side of this, how, when you have seen classrooms and teachers flip their curriculum to be more oriented around content and experiences at the student level, how much effort does that take? Our teachers aren't really trained that way right now. And so how, how, did, how does that shift happen and how much support do teachers need in order to kind of move in that direction? Well, again, it's going to depend on the teacher. And certainly some teachers have said to me, this is, this is the way I always wanted to teach it, take to it like a duck to water. But I think that probably is the minority because it is very different from what teachers are used to, what they've been trained to believe should happen. Um, right. I mean, they, they, they've often been told because unfortunately, you know, our, our ed schools, our teacher training programs, um, there's a longstanding sort of pedagogical orthodoxy that it's actually not necessary to build kids' knowledge. And maybe it's even harmful that it just bores them. It's not hmm. developmentally appropriate for kids to learn about topics like history. It's too abstract. It's, um, they won't be interested in it. There is absolutely no basis in evidence for that. I mean, huh. you don't want to lecture to six-year-olds, but you know, history is a series of, can be presented as a series of stories sure. in a very engaging way. And I've seen kids get fascinated by it, but there are a lot of those kinds of assumptions, um, misconceptions that, um, you know, teachers through no fault of their own may be carrying with them. 
And so, yes, um, you know, eventually it would be nice if teacher training programs, you know, got more in line with what science has found out about how learning works. But in the meantime, uh, it's probably gonna have to be done on the job. And so that means adopting one of these new curricula is only the first step. And there's going to need to be, you know, uh, coaching, support, um, professional development, although not, I mean, professional development as we have known it has not worked. I'm there, that's clear. And it's like maybe a one day workshop on how to foster critical thinking in the abstract, that's not gonna work. But what can work, and there is evidence of this, if you're teaching about Greek myths, um, you, you can learn about how to foster critical thinking about the specifics of the Greek myth you're teaching about. And also it should be ongoing. So yeah. it should be, and collaborative. So it could be maybe a group of teachers getting together, talking about something new they're gonna try in the classroom and then going and trying it and then coming back together, discussing how it went and then the cycle repeats. How, so how big a role do you think um, cities have to play in the nurturing of students who have less opportunity available to them and, and families, I think? Um, it's just interesting to me that if you're raised in a particular family, an educated family, uh, you have more access, I would imagine, to stories through reading, through experiences, et cetera, than other students who um, come to school with less is there a role that cities, that municipalities should be playing as well to serve more vulnerable families that would help move the needle on these opportunities and these experiences? You know, I, I think there are lots of things that need to be done for kids who, you know, may not have enough to eat, may not have a stable place to live. I mean, those things are all hugely important to their development. Sure. But, um, and, I th and, and we shouldn't stop trying to address those problems, but as far as what we can do in school, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we can do, we have these kids seven hours a day and, you know, they're, they're more resilient, many of them, than we think. And school, if, if you make a kid feel smart because they actually are, because you're, you're giving them the grist for their intellectual mill and they... There's, I mean, I've seen these kids be so proud of what they know and feel so much more confident and their self-image changes so that they're not being told, you still don't know the difference between, you know, the subgenre of fantasy is actually fiction rather than nonfiction. I mean, I've heard first graders basically berated for this by a well-meaning teacher. That does mm. not make a kid feel good. Right. A kid could be living in a homeless shelter, but that kid goes into a classroom and is learning a vocabulary word like enlightenment. And that does wonders for that kid's yeah. self-image. Right. So um, I think there is so much that we can do, even while we are simultaneously trying to address these very naughty and, and much more intractable problems uh, outside the school. And we really, you know, there are campaigns to get parents to read to their kids, to, to talk more to those, their kids. And those are great, but they're not going to be enough because if, if the parents themselves don't have a lot of education, don't have a lot of academic knowledge and vocabulary, and may not have a lot of time and resources, you know, they're not gonna be able to fill this gap in, in right. their kids' education. And it's really the job of schools to do that. Yeah, now talk a little bit about COVID-19 and, you know, just how that's exacerbating this phenomenon. And from your vantage point, how much is that affecting 
this generation of students um, kind of overall? I, I'm sure you think a lot about this, but share some of your thoughts with us. Well, I mean, it's, it's incredibly troubling and heartbreaking to see what's going on. And, you know, um, I, I would say our schools were already not working to level the playing field for mm. kids from different kinds of families. In fact, every year kids are in school in our current system, the gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students grows larger. So it, it becomes very wide and very hard to narrow at the high school level. Not impossible, right. but, but school's doing something. And now we have kids, you know, who are, they may not have access to whatever is being offered online, but they're also at home 24 seven. And so the kids who have more educated parents, their knowledge is expanding even more. I mean, there, there is some evidence that during COVID, those advantaged kids are actually soaring ahead of where they would have been if they'd been in school, while the less advantaged kids are falling further behind where they would have been. So it's clearly um, deepening, widening this, this already large divide. And, you know, my concern is, well, a, a couple, I'll say a couple things. What I just uh, witnessed going on. I mentioned I was sitting in on some virtual classes in the Baltimore City public school system. Right. Dur even during a period of remote or hybrid learning, if you have a content-focused curriculum as they do in Baltimore, you can do so much more. I mean, these, these kids, one of these classes I was in, there were 50 kids, but they were participating through the chat. They were, you know, raising their hands on Zoom. They were engaged. They, in fact, it started with like 46 and, and then it went to 50 and not a single one of them dropped off during this lesson about the poetry of World War One. I. I mean, this was Dolce at Decorum Est and in <laughs> Flanders Fields. So this is, was not, and these were, this was not a high income group of kids. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would say to a school district thinking, oh, well, we can't make this change during this pandemic. Yes, you, you can and you should. Yeah. And when kids come back to school, it's gonna be more important than ever to move away from this misleading focus on so-called comprehension skills mm. and towards building knowledge. How, how much of a role do testing companies have in shifting that what we're testing? Do, do they own that content? I mean, I, I'm just trying to think about, it feels like we need some sort of paradigm shift, especially now to recover from uh, this crazy pandemic crisis. And, um, it's kind of like, where, where do you start? Like, you know, how do you, you can't just blow up everything, but how do you, how do you get schools and districts to say, you know, we're going to shift to focusing on content because the science shows that that's how we should be teaching kids. Well, as I said, it is already happening. And I mean, I, I, I think it would be great if the testing companies could do something to get away from this idea that these the standardized reading comprehension tests as they currently exist are actually testing um, some general comprehension skill or ability. I mean, that, that, that is so deeply rooted in our system. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for everybody to wrap their minds around how much actually needs to change and, yeah. and also to the ripple effects of what we've been doing. I mean, it really, almost any issue in education it really, for me, at least I've added this to my lens of how I'm looking at things and it, it changes. I mean, I, you know, it changes everything. 
Um, right. I mean, one, one suggestion for testing companies that's been thrown out there is they could announce in advance. I mean, now it's like those testing passages are closely guarded secrets, so like what the topics are gonna be. But they could say in advance, as they do in some other countries, um, okay, we're gonna, the, the reading passages will cover four of the following six or eight topics. Mm -hmm. So it's not, you know, like, okay, this is exactly what's gonna be on the test, but at least it would give teachers a chance of preparing their kids to do well on the test. I mean, I, I'd say the problem with that is it's kind of a backwards way to design curriculum. Totally. You're, you're letting the test drive the curriculum, which is kind of what we were already doing. I was gonna say that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it's ideal. Um, yeah. But it might be. And where do you think, if you were running a district right now, you know, if, if you're going to start today, if you're thinking about summer as an opportunity to try to reverse some of the things that have happened during COVID, if you're looking to next year, what sorts of things would you start to shift into? Because I feel, I feel like all we've done so far, or primarily what we've done is said, refuse to admit that we're in a different paradigm, that COVID-19 has created a completely different dynamic. And we just keep plodding along, except for our interface is now virtual as opposed to three-dimensional. But not much else has changed. And and in there, a lot of ch has changed because like, like you just described, some kids are faring very, very well. And some kids are really missing out, including just completely not showing up. So what, what do you think the one or two things are that we should be focused on? What's being discussed a lot right now is the idea of tutoring to overcome, quote unquote, COVID related learning loss. Right. And tutoring could work for some in, for some things. I mean, it probably it certainly could work for de the decoding aspect of reading kids mm -hmm. who have not really learned how to sound out words, how to use phonics to sound out words. It could maybe work for math. But a lot of tutoring and what's being discussed is tutoring and reading comprehension skills and strategies. And I did that as a volunteer years ago. And just as I was sort of figuring this all out, and one day I thought, wait a minute, I'm just, I'm doing the very thing that I'm writing about and, and then saying it's, or reading about, and, and it's not going to work. Huh. And so um, I, you know, this, it's going to be logistically a lot more difficult to provide this, but what would work better is tutoring in you know, you've, if you've got a content-rich curriculum, tutor in that, get somebody to help tutor a kid in that content because mm. some kids may be having a harder time understanding it. Uh, but that requires a tutor who actually is familiar with the content um, right. and the, the sort of, you know, and I think this is one of the reasons that the skills and strategies approach to comprehension has taken hold so much. It's not just testing because it existed before testing exacerbated it. It's that it's easy it appears easy to do. You can get an uns relatively unskilled tutor and say, like me, and say, okay, now you're going to work with Keisha or whoever on yeah. sequencing an informational text, you know, and it turns out Keisha doesn't understand the book we're working on because it's about the Golden Gate Bridge and she's never heard of California, et cetera. Right. So, you know, it's easy to do, but it doesn't actually work. Yeah, that's interesting. And it, what are, so I'm just thinking about, you know, if you're living in a vulnerable situation, how, what are, what are the ways that you access experiences? Is it really, does it go back to the number of books that you've read before a certain age? Does it, and maybe, I don't know, movies that you've watched, conversations that you've had? I mean, I guess it, all of that plays into it, but are there things that schools could be 
saying to families over the summer, you know, you should read these books. Here they are. You should be watching these films. Like, are there ways to build knowledge that kind of help to support the, this transformation that you want to see in schools? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I think um, if, if you look at something like the baseball study, um, it shows us kids don't necessarily learn initially about an unfamiliar topic through their own reading or even through a single book. Yeah. Those kids who knew a lot about baseball and were able to do well on a comprehension test about baseball, they probably played baseball, they probably been to baseball games, they probably talked to their parents or their friends about baseball. So it's not just a matter of reading. I mean, I think we've kind of like focused a bit too much on reading mm -hmm. as equaling literacy. Mm -hmm. It's a whole bunch of things that feed into literacy. A lot of it will be listening and and not and discussion, dialogue, using not just hearing new vocabulary, but then using it, using it and right. not to forget about writing, which um, you know, it's something that parents aren't generally going to be working on, but it is a potentially a hugely powerful lever for building knowledge and familiarizing kids with the conventions of written language that we have unfortunately really not exploited because we, we haven't understood how to teach it. And we basically haven't even been trying to teach it in many classrooms. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you, and, and just switching gears just slightly, we talked about how, you know, tests may be driving the wrong behavior in terms of what we're teaching um, along lines of reading and literacy. It, going back to the exam school discussion, is it, should we be past exam schools? Like, is it still, is it still a good idea to have exam schools in the public school system? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm conflicted about that. You know, I mean, when I was on the board of a charter school and people would say, well, these charter schools, you know, they either cream the crop of, of students, which, you know, at least in my experience, isn't really true, but it is a self-selected mm. group of students. And, you know, we wouldn't tolerate a sort of creaming the crop of students in the charter school context, but we also have these in, in Washington, DC as well. We have these exam schools that yeah. quite openly do that kind of creaming. Um, I think that, you know, there is an argument that uh, some kids, especially certainly at the height, by the high school level are able to just race ahead and you don't want to hold them back. Whether you need a whole school full of those kids, I don't really know, um, but I am convinced that there are students out there who have not gotten the, you know, the kind of elementary education that really would set them up for success, but they're really motivated. They're really cu intellectually curious and they could succeed at some elite school with a lot of support. Right. Um, I mean, you know, and they should be given that opportunity. And I think that these, I mean, I, I, I don't know, I assume that the tests for these exam schools are like standardized reading tests. They're not tied to anything kids have actually learned in school. Right. So I think one thing to do would be to, you know, I mean, in, within a school district, this should be more doable. Ground those tests in the content that kids have been actually exposed to in school. And that would, I think, make it fairer. Yeah, I think you're right. It, it, what I hear you saying is, you know, it, assessments are good, but the assessments have to be tied to the knowledge of individual students. And there, and you really see the possibility for the, for that child. Right. Right. I yeah. think. And I mean, I think by the time 
ideally by the time kids are graduating from high school and taking tests for you know SATs and ACTs, ideally they should have acquired enough general academic knowledge and vocabulary that they, you know, should have a fighting, any of them should have a fighting chance of doing okay on those tests, but we don't have that system yet. Right, right, right. So are you hopeful, given what you're seeing about the adoption of new programs, are are you hopeful that uh, trends will continue in that direction in education? I mean, I try to be. Um, yeah. it's, it, it's hard to know what's really going on out there. I tend to hear from the places that are going through this change um, mm-hmm. and, and teachers who are in those districts. Um, and, you know, there are more and more of them, but we got a really big country. There are over like 14,000 school districts. And it's, it's hard to say um, what's really going to happen. Um, at least for the kids who are in those districts that are making this change and in those classrooms where teachers are doing amazing stuff. Um, you know, I hope that those kids will will prove um, prove themselves, you know, in years to come. This is, I said, it's a gradual process, but if, if we see like in a place like Baltimore in eight or 10 years, that those ki- kids are off the charts for kids with similar demographics, I, I mean, I think people might start to look up and take notice. Yeah, I know it's so troubling that we have to wait that many years though to see the um, success. Yeah. But but if you're a parent or uh, you know someone who's interested in education and edu- in change in education, you're listening to this right now. What would you, what words would you give them to you know lobby for certain changes in in their own systems? If I was going to show up at school committee in in the city of Boston next week and say, hey, I'd love to see us move in the direction of X, what what, what would I be asking for? Yeah, um, and I do, you know, parents are a group that I'm really trying to reach because I think they're kind of the sleeping giant here. And I think if yeah. more parents were really aware of, and as I think they have become during the pandemic and remote schooling, more aware of what is going on in these, in their kids' classrooms. And and if they were aware of how it conflicts with what cognitive science has found about how kids learn, I think there would be a lot more agitation. Um, but I'd say one thing is it strength in numbers. So if you can uh, not just go to a meeting as a lone parent, but if you can band together with other like-minded parents, that that's probably a great thing to do. Um, you know, talking to your individual, your child's teacher or your child's school, it might be a little awkward, but, you know, it, it, I know when I was, my kids are in their 30s now, but when they were little, I didn't really pay that much attention to the curriculum. I just kind of trusted the parent, the, the teachers in the school and everything. I think a lot of parents are like that. But, you know, now that I know a little bit more and I realize, wait a minute, my kids did not learn anything about history until they were like in fifth grade, you know? Right, right. Um, except for me. Um, I, I would have paid more attention and I might have started to raise some questions about why that's the case. And do you know that? there's evidence showing this, that, or the other thing. Um, so I hope parents can can do that. Um, and, uh, you know, the other thing about convincing skeptical, if, if you encounter skeptical educators, I think what's most powerful is if there's a nearby district or something that school mm-hmm. that is doing this, that this kind of change, they've been doing it for maybe a couple of years, so they kind of feel comfortable with it showing people what this looks like is more powerful than just talking about it and even talking about the science. Because I think a lot of teachers, they feel like, oh, the kids won't like it. You know, they, they won't be engaged. They, they won't understand it. And then they go into a second grade classroom and the kids are super engaged and they're 
having these amazing discussions and the teachers really like it and the parents really like it, you know, that's what really, I think, changes hearts and minds. Yeah, absolutely. What are, what are the names of some of these new curriculums? Um, so the one I was observing this morning is called Wit and Wisdom. That's the one mm-hmm. the Baltimore City Public Schools has adopted. Um, the oldest of them is called Core Knowledge Language Arts, um, sometimes abbreviated to CKLA. Um, there's one called L or EL Education that's been adopted in Detroit. Um, there, there are several others um, that I'm not as familiar with, but um, there's one called Bookworms that I have also seen in action. You know, I think um, they're all, they all cover different bodies of knowledge in different ways. And it's nice that there's a, a range of choices out there because different schools, different districts may find different ones suited to their needs. Yeah, more compelling. Interesting. So as a writer, what are you thinking about next? What, what are you most curious about or want to do a story about? Well, I'm actually just beginning to look into um, one of the things that's become apparent to me during and after the writing in the book is a lot of the problem here seems to have to do with the way teachers are trained, mm-hmm. um, that it, it just doesn't line up with the science of learning. Right. Um, and so that's a very complex problem and it's a kind of hard to encapsulate it in an engaging way, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of look into um, what teacher training looks like, why it has evolved the way it has. Um, And there are now efforts both to bring the science of learning or cognitive science to practicing teachers and even uh, some beginning efforts to bring it into the ed school curriculum, which is really where it belongs. Amazing, that's so great. Natalie, thank you so much for talking with us today about this topic. It's um, fantastic, so interesting, and uh, I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Jill. Thanks for the great questions. This is a great discussion. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Natalie Wexler. I hope that this provided some insights into the challenges we face in transforming our education system into something that benefits all students equally. K through 12 education is a huge lever in America's future success, but there are others that are equally important, including the experiences and opportunities for these future leaders. Our education system must be in lockstep with our municipal systems to ensure that students have the supports that they need to solve for inequities that they face. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.